Well, I would invite you uh, to turn your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. And let me remind you that this morning we continue our series in the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Dave and myself have the privilege of uh, filling the pulpit this month for November, and so we have been alternating back and forth between uh, various Psalms of Ascent. And it's been mentioned that if the Psalter, or the book of Psalms itself, is the hymn book of ancient Israel, there's sort of a mini hymn book within that hymn book that we call the Songs of Ascent. That is Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And those 15 songs got that name, the Psalms of Ascent, because it's thought that they were the very uh, phrases and lyrics that were sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way up to the elevation elevated location, the elevated city that was Jerusalem as she sat on Mount Zion. And so these songs were, were literal as the people are ascending up to Jerusalem, ascending to worship, they would celebrate these lyrics and these phrases together. And so they became songs for the journey. They became pilgrim songs for the people of Israel. But we know that in the New Testament, we are told that the true Israel of God are those who have placed their faith in the one whom God has sent, in the Messiah, Christ Jesus. And so these songs of ascent are ours as well as Christians. As we find ourselves in between the times, we find ourselves people who live in the earthly city. People who live in the city of man, but we recognize this is not our true home. That we too are on pilgrimage. We too are on a journey to the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And so these too are songs that we can sing on the road. The road of life that brings us through the ups and downs and everything in between. You see, the Psalms are a beautiful, beautiful book because they give us language for whatever situation we might find ourselves in life. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, one of my favorite pastoral voices. He says, Psalms is a magnetic center. It pulls every scrap and dimension of human experience into the presence of God. The Psalms are indiscriminate in their subject matter. Complaint and thanks doubt and anger, outcries of pain and outbursts of joy, quiet reflection and boisterous worship. If it's human, it qualifies. Any human experience, feeling, or thought can be prayed in the Psalms. So this morning, as we once again remind ourselves that we are a people on the journey, that we are people who ourselves are not immune to the ups and the downs and the trials and the difficulties of this life. We turn our attention this morning to Psalm 130. So hear these words. The psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you are the God who has spoken. Father, we are thankful that you are the God who has given us your very word in the scriptures, that we can hold them in our hands, that we can read them freely, that in them we find the source of our salvation, the source of life. And so, Father, this morning, as we have a few moments in your word, we pray that you would send your spirit to ultimately illuminate this text to give us understanding. And Father, we pray that through the power of your Spirit that we would, in the written word, see the word who became flesh, Christ Jesus. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask now that you would bless your word, you would bless the preaching of your word, and that ultimately we would not leave here just hearers of the word, but doers. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, a few years ago on Fox, there was uh, this drama called Wayward Pines. And Wayward Pines was this short-lived television series that was based on a series of novels. And essentially, the plot revolved around a Secret Service agent who had to travel to remote Idaho to investigate the disappearance of one of his colleagues. And as he's traveling through this remote portion of Idaho, he, he has this car crash, this sort of just dramatic car crash, and he doesn't know what happens, and he's knocked out cold, and he wakes up in this picturesque and idyllic and creepy, all-too-good-to-be-true town called Wayward Pines, where nothing is quite as it seems, where everybody's just a little too put together a little too happy and polished, a little too Pleasantville, if you will. And as he's there, he realizes you can't leave. There is this sheriff who rules with an iron fist. There's electrified fences. And the whole community revolves around these seven rules. Number one, enjoy your life. Number two, work hard. Number three, do not discuss the past. Number four, be happy. Number five, always answer the phone if it rings. Number six, do not discuss your life before. And number seven, do not try to leave. This was life in Wayward Pines. And as I was reflecting on this psalm this morning, I thought to myself, you know, sometimes life here on earth, sometimes life in the world we find ourselves, life in 2017, it feels a little this way. A little wayward pines-ish. We can't talk about our struggles or our failures. We live in a society that encourages us to mask weakness, to cultivate skills in appearing that we always have it all together. I mean, you can't help but watch just commercials on TV or whatever it might be, and we're just communicated over and over again that our men have to be confident, decisive, rugged and tough. We can't ever show weakness. Women have to be bold and beautiful and unblemished. 
never showing age. Our children have to be well-adjusted and achieving honor roll and making every possible sports team and club. Our careers must be flourishing and earning us that sterling reputation, that handsome income. Our houses must reflect the latest trends on HGTV. Our accounts need to be accruing proper interest and ensuring us that healthy retirement. In other words, when people ask that standard greeting, hey, how you doing? Hey, how are you? We have to always respond with that smile, great, great, never better, never better. And if the world doesn't itself put enough pressure on us to to preen and to perform and to project, we don't always find much recourse in the church either. Churches can become country clubs just without the tennis courts. Christians have to always find a silver lining and say, bless your heart. Pastors on TV step off their Learjets and they tell us that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if we're neither of those things, then something has gone terribly wrong in our spiritual lives. You see, even in the church sometimes, we can confess our true selves, we can confess our struggles and our failures, but only to a point. Don't tell me too much. Don't be too honest about who you really are. You see, we live in a world And we often live in churches where we medicate and we manipulate and we airbrush difficulties and the low places of life away. And we pretend that they aren't there. We pretend. But the psalmist this morning, the psalmist in 130, he doesn't know much about our 21st century sensibilities. Instead, if you noticed, very honestly, Very genuinely, very refreshingly, in my opinion, he says, look, I'm in the depths. I'm in the depths, O Lord. Once again, my life has hit rock bottom. I'm in the depths, and I don't care who knows it. And if you notice, the psalmist doesn't care who knows it because he's assured that someone does know it. That God himself knows where he truly is. So he says, why pretend? Why mask? Why cover it up? Why pretend I'm not at rock bottom when the only person, the only being who really matters knows exactly where I am. The God who sees all knows I'm once again at the bottom. And you can almost feel the freedom and the comfort that the psalmist enjoys and he finds in being honest. Because you see, there are depths And there are valleys, and there are pits of life that if we fall into them, friends would leave us. Co-workers would leave us. Acquaintances who might not really be our friends anyways would leave us. But the psalmist understands one thing this morning, that God, that the God of the universe will never leave him will never turn a deaf ear to his plea for help. If I were to borrow the lyric from the 60s and 70s song, there ain't no mountain of sin and failure high enough. There ain't no mountain or valley of sin and failure low enough that'll keep God from getting to you, from hearing you. 
And so we hear these first few verses this morning. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas, my pleas for mercy. You see, the psalmist's cry there isn't this cry of uncertainty, but it's a cry of confidence as he knows there's no chasm, there's no trench, there's no pit too deep where the Lord can't hear his plea and his cry for mercy. But as we continue into verses 3 and 4, he begins to sort of ask this rhetorical question. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. You see, as the bottom of his life has fallen out, the psalmist rightly, he cries out to God. He seeks comfort from God. Then you can almost see the wheels turning in his head. As he, he cries out, he goes, well, hold on though. Hold on a second. Who in the world am I? Who in the world am I to petition the God of the universe? What credentials do I possess that would cause him to turn his ear to my cry? How am I even worthy to stand in his presence? You can perceive this feeling that begins to kind of well up in the psalmist. It's this feeling of insecurity. It's this feeling of inadequacy. You know, it's the same feeling that we all get maybe when we walk into this, you know, really fancy gala or this really fancy banquet. Or it's the same feeling we can kind of get when we, we walk into, uh, you know, the presence of, you know, very important people that we want to impress. Or the feeling we get when we walk into that, that five-star restaurant with the white linens on the table and all of a sudden what happens? We become keenly aware of all of our shortcomings. We become keenly aware of all of our insecurities. That stain midway down our shirt we hope nobody would notice. That nose hair we forgot to trim that morning. Whatever it might be, that belt hanging on for dear life, we all of a sudden become aware of our insecurities. We become aware of our shortcomings. And we want to ask ourselves, will I measure up? Am I sufficient? Who am I trying to fool? They know the real me. I had this very powerful feeling when I was in college. Speaking of five-star restaurants, I worked at a five-star restaurant in college for a very brief amount of time on Palm Beach Island. And it was one of those restaurants where you had to wear basically a tuxedo minus the jacket. So bow tie, cufflinks, the whole nine yards. And I was working a dinner party one time, this gala with very well-to-do, respectable people, Palm Beach Island, five-star restaurant. And I'm carrying hors d'oeuvres. This time it was a, a pizza with high-end ingredients, okay? Caviar, whatever. And I'm running through the, the crowd and my hand slipped just slightly. And the pizza in the middle of everybody. Women put together in beautiful dresses. Men put together handsomely in their finest attire. All of a sudden my hand slides and the pizza comes crashing down, not only on the floor, but on the lady next to me on that beautiful dress. I was mortified. I was mortified. Who am I to be here? Who am I to stand in the presence of such people? You see, the insecurities begin 
to creep in. And it's the same thing here for the psalmist. He gets self-conscious and he realizes that he doesn't just lack the credentials to warrant an audience with the God of the universe, but he actually possesses a record of sin that warrants condemnation, that warrants rejection. He had dropped the pizza before God and he stands guilty. He stands unworthy. And he begins to wonder, if God counts my iniquities, I'm in real trouble. I'm in real trouble. If God is like the cable company, where when you call for help, they have to first verify your account and make sure your bill is current before they will dole out help. If God is like that, then he says, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. If you mark iniquities, oh God, who could stand? But thankfully in that moment, the psalmist realizes. He realizes a greater truth about God that shines even brighter. That God doesn't mark iniquities. That God doesn't keep score. And he doesn't do those things because of that magical word we're given in verse 4, that word of forgiveness. As Dave prayed a few minutes ago, that word of forgiveness, that assurance of pardon that is ours, that God did count our iniquities, he did keep a record of our sin, but then he attributed it to his perfect son, Christ Jesus. And he nailed those things to the cross. He tallied our sins, not against us, but against his perfect and unblemished son, Jesus. And he now credits his perfection and his righteousness to our bankrupt and guilty and deserving of condemnation account. And he does those things that we can now petition the God of the universe and be seen as if we were blameless, as if we were deserving of an audience with the king. Robert Capon, another colorful commentator on scripture, puts it this way. The human race is positively addicted to keeping records and remembering scores. What we call our life is for the most part simply the juggling of accounts in our heads. And yet if God has announced anything in Jesus, it is that he, for one, has pensioned off the bookkeeping department permanently. In Christ's death and resurrection, God has declared that he isn't the least interested in examining anybody's books ever again, not even his own. He's nailed them all to the cross. So you see, the psalmist considers the staggering magnitude of what God has done. He considers the forgiveness that is his. He considers the favor that is his. And if you notice in those verses, specifically in verse 4, what does it produce in the psalmist? If you notice, it's interesting. He considers the Lord's favor. He considers the Lord's forgiveness. And it actually produces within him fear. Fear. It says in verse 4, But with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It's interesting. But you see, it's not a fear of rejection. It's not a fear of God's favor having an expiration date. It's this holy and reverent and jaw-dropping fear as he considers the magnitude of what God's done for him. Think of that old spiritual that says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. To tremble. 
You see, he considers all that is his in the gospel, all that is his in Christ Jesus, and it produces within him this holy fear, this jaw-dropping reverence for the God of the universe who would stoop so low as to show you and me and the psalmist such undeserved favor. But then he continues into verses 5 and 6, and you begin to see hope blossom. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. You see, in the depths of life, he compares himself to the feeling that a watchman at the city gate would have had. Apprehension. Fear. Uncertainty. Not knowing if an enemy will all of a sudden sort of crest that hill and come and attack. But the comparison there is as the watchman sits in fear and apprehension and uncertainty, he consoles himself with knowing that though he might fear for the night, that hope and peace and joy come with the dawn of the morning. That's the very same feeling the psalmist now begins to get in his own life. That he may once again find himself in the depths of despair due to a sin he committed. But in the dawn of God's word of hope and word of forgiveness, he will place his trust. That he may find himself in the depths of despair in his life due to an unexpected tragedy, but in the dawn of God's word to never leave him, never forsake him, he will find hope. He will find peace. That he might find himself once again in the depth of despair due to difficulty in this life, but in the dawn of God's word of grace to be sufficient for him, in God's word to be Emmanuel, God with him, in the low places, he will find hope. And as you keep reading then, you begin to see the psalm turn. And it does this beautiful 180 as the psalmist stands on the promise of the gospel. And he stands on the hope of God's word. And if you noticed, a song that began in the pit, it began in the depths, now begins to ascend to the heights. Look at verse 7. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In verse 1 and 2, he says, Oh Lord, hear my voice. He's in the low places. And now, at the end, he's in the high places and said, There's hope in the Lord. There's hope in the Lord. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. You see, the psalmist has just rehearsed the gospel to himself. He's just re-preached to himself the good news And he's now able to sing a new song. He's able to sing a new tune. There is hope in the Lord. There is plentiful redemption. There is steadfast love. It's this picture, if you will, of someone who comes to God empty-handed, comes beaten down and forlorn by life, and then he experiences that grace of the Lord, that gospel of peace wash over him and wash him with that plentiful and that exuberant language. And you see, for us this morning, 
This ability to cry out. This ability to be assured that we have hope in the Lord is the very thing that we will celebrate in just a few moments as we come to the Lord's table. You see, as we come to the Lord's table, we consider Christ Jesus crucified in the bread and in the cup. And we're reminded that whatever depth or, or pit of life that we might find ourselves in, we worship a God who can identify, who can sympathize with us to the uttermost. That Christ Jesus himself was not exempt from the trials and the difficulties and the pain of this life. And so because of that, he will not abandon you in your pain or difficulty this morning. In fact, we know that Jesus experienced pain and difficulty and trial to the uttermost as he hung abandoned on the cross. As he took our sin upon us to the point where God the Father turned his back. Where God the Father would not listen to his cry for mercy. And he did that for you and for me. That we might be saved that we might be brought into the family of God and assured that through Christ Jesus, the one who was abandoned, we will never be abandoned. That through Christ Jesus, the one to whom God turned a deaf ear on the cross will never turn a deaf ear to us. We cry to him for mercy. See, we're reminded once again in the bread and in the cup that we have a God. We have a God who is with us and the struggles, and the despair of this life. And he's given us hope. And he's given us hope and deliverance for all eternity in the finished work of his son Jesus. So the question I have for you this morning is, have you hope in this Lord? Have you placed your hope in the God of Israel who revealed himself, the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have done that this morning, and this meal that we're about to experience together is for you. It's a family meal where we once again rehearse the good news to ourselves. We once again remind ourselves that as surely as I hold this bread in my hand and as surely as I hold this cup in my hand, I hold on to salvation and favor from God. But if you haven't done that yet, If you're not at a place in your life where you can say for certain that you've trusted Christ as your only hope, as your only Lord, then I would ask you a couple things. First is, come talk to one of us after service in the back. We would love to share how you can know for certain that there's hope in Christ. We'd also ask that you kindly let the plate and the cup pass you by and ponder in your heart this morning what you've heard. And pray the Lord will reveal himself to you. Because you're not trusting in the Lord, you're trusting in something. But only the Lord Jesus, only the crucified and risen Savior, is your steadfast hope and rock in whatever pit you find yourself in this morning. And he's your only steadfast hope and rock in the life to come. You see, Scripture tells us that God wills that none should perish. That none should ultimately experience the depths and the pit 
of the afterlife to come. But through Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone, he desires that all would be welcomed and privy to the heights of heaven, to the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus now and forevermore.